Welcome to the first ever episode of What's in Store, a Follett Higher Ed podcast. Today we'll hear from academic researcher, Dr. Michael Moore, and Follett President Ryan Peterson to discuss the transformative findings of Dr. Moore's research and how inclusive and equitable access programs are improving student outcomes and success. Listen in to hear more about the impacts of inclusive and equitable access models across demographics, how OER fits in, and why this research is needed now more than ever. Mike, it's great to see you. You too, Ryan. Mike's research has been on the student learning outcome and educational improvements that have come from more affordable course material programs. Correct. Uh, I feel like we've, we're kind of fellow travelers. Um, you used to work in college stores. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience and any way that it might inform the way you've approached your research. Working in the college store has informed my research. I think it gives me a unique perspective to look at the data and not just looking at numbers and not really understanding like how it connects to a practical application. So when I see you know, a 13% increase in letter grade C or better for black students, I know what that means. You know, when I see that success uh, course completion rate, you know, of 21% difference for participants and non-participants uh, in an equal access model, I know what it means because I've been there. I've had to hold the hand of a mom and a dad trying to pay rent, eat, and then also buy course materials. So that practical application piece I think is so important in helping everyone understand why these interventions are so important. I couldn't agree with you more. I've come to these issues from a similar path. I think you actually moved to San Francisco in end of 2009, the same time that I moved there to found my company, Verba Software. Uh, where we were trying to approach affordability from a price comparison perspective and we started working with college stores as well and in that experience working with the college store we developed some of the first inclusive access models which really was trying to marry that affordability with making sure that as many students as possible had their course materials and so I, I feel like you're a fellow traveler, not just like actually being in the same place as time, because you were working at the University of San Francisco, University of San Francisco at the end of 2009, uh, but also coming to these inclusive and equitable access models. Right. Um, you've done research on on both models, or you're very aware of research on on both models. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between them? Any differences in in research outcomes or different perspectives that people have brought to research on inclusive versus equitable access? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is when I when I did my research on inclusive access, I looked at success rates, so that's letter grade A through C. Um, and in the equitable access research, I looked at course completion rate, which is A through D. So it's a little bit different metric, so I can't compare you know, the inclusive access research to the equitable access research because they're two different uh, approaches that I took to it, but the inclusive access research is really interesting in that you know it's it's just by course. So you know there's it's very uh, like a targeted impact. You know when an institution uses an inclusive access program, it's only looking at a, you know a select number of courses. Where in equitable access, it's every course, it's every student, it's every section. So when we think about impact of what that means, I think equitable access has the largest impact because it's 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 the whole institution you know it's everybody and can i ask why you felt one metric was appropriate for one approach and the other for the equitable access why did you move from C or better to course completion rate. Yeah, and a lot of that is an evolution of my thinking and my evolution uh, as a researcher as I grew and I I I 
got an understanding of what metrics might be most impactful. For institutions, I've come to the realization that uh, course completion rate is probably a, be uh, a better metric. You know, in, in the research, what I found was that there are some who believe that course completion rate is the most effective metric in understanding our institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so I really wanted to focus on that because course completion means that we're helping students move towards degree attainment. Like they're, they're getting through their classes. In most institutions, you need a 2.0 to graduate and course completion is A through D. So if you get one D, it's not gonna paralyze you mm. uh, as you move to door, towards degree attainment. So really it's about a metric that can help us understand how students are moving quicker uh, and more swiftly through the institution and towards ultimately getting their credential or their degree. It's interesting because you're looking at student learning outcomes and you're marrying it probably to the most impactful cost, which is like textbooks are a big cost and absolutely focus on them, but tuition and a lot of it financed by student loans. And probably the worst scenario for a student is to rack up student debt, but not end up receiving that degree and having to bear that debt without the earnings potential of the degree. Marrying to course completion does kind of align those things. The faster a student can get to graduation with a degree means there's less cost that they're incurring. They're entering the market to earn and pay down debt more quickly. Like it makes sense, uh, I think, quantitatively for the lifetime impact on the student as well. I think that we can extrapolate what we're seeing with the research with equitable access and students having their course materials. It's not, it's not ludicrous to say that if you complete more courses that you're going to spend less time in school. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, great, the benefit of the reduced cost of an equitable access program coupled with not having to retake a course. That, I think that is incredible in that we have the ability to do this in I I think over time, you know, like I think when we reflect back on the 22, 23, 24 co cohorts, we're going to see decreased time in college. We're going to see an increase in college completion. It's it's kind of crazy to extrapolate that, but I really think that that's what these interventions mean in higher ed. Coming up, Michael and Ryan discuss the concept of the demographic cliff and how OER plays into course materials intervention. Mike, one thing that I know is on the top of minds of leaders of institutions of higher education is the often called, not completely inappropriately, demographic cliff in 2025 from a sudden decline in birth rates occurring at the beginning of the Great Recession. Um, this has leaders thinking about recruitment, enrollment, retention, um, it seems like your research speaks to some of this problem. When we think about what it means for recruiting students and retaining students and then again equitable access, what we're seeing in the research is that if you're a participant in equitable access program and it, the total population in the study, you're 15.5% more, more likely to complete the course. So. If we extrapolate that and we can say that an institution who's using these types of programs can, can show students that if they go to that institution, they're more likely to complete the course, they're more likely to move through the program quicker. 
you know, it's again depending on demographic. We know that the profile of a two-year institution mm-hmm. is more part-time, maybe more of a non-traditional student. So that, to me, would be a draw to say that if you come here, you know, your 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 likelihood of success is greater than if you go somewhere else. It just as a cultural shift, if more people feel like attending college is more likely to lead to them completing it, it will change the pers. The, it will rationally change the perception of the risk of attending and incurring those costs and ensuring that you end up with a degree. Right. I think that it's a really about time in college. Mm-hmm. Like, we can cut that. I think we can cut that down. I think that course choice interventions, whether it's inclusive access, equitable access, or OER, I think all of them have the opportunity to help us provide students with a better picture of what it's going to take, mm-hmm. you know, that time frame in school, because they're going to be less worried about their course materials, which research has shown contributes to students not taking the major they want or not taking a course until later or at a particular time. So if we can just reduce those barriers and those challenges, I think it will open the door for a lot more students in at institutions that are using, you know, these models. Yeah, it's if if students have greater speed to graduation, if they are retained throughout their career to graduation, and if college is seen as more affordable and more accessible so that more are recruited, only I think around 40% of 18 to 24 year olds end up enrolling in college. The demographic cliff can be totally wiped away simply by greater participation, both for 18 to 24, but also for adult learners, if they think that it's more affordable and they're more likely to receive a degree. I think it's about fixed time and fixed cost. Like if if we can provide, and I see we in as higher education, you know, as a whole industry. Um, or segment, if we can help more with the fixed costs and the fixed time, we definitely know this is what it's going to cost, and we definitely know how long this is going to take. I think that can help alleviate some of the mm-hmm. concerns of not knowing if higher ed is worth it. You know, and I think by helping reduce the costs and, and cutting the time down, students can feel that their the value is there to still be in higher ed and still attain the degrees and credentials you know that they want. I think that is completely aligned with the whole mission of college and universities. I appreciate it. It's I, and I appreciate your reservation as a researcher. There, are, I think there are conclusions that we can draw here, and I hope that your research inspires other researchers to take a look at this. Like the whole, I, I do. This is very understudied. It feels like for something that impacts almost every student has a book assigned to them, and yet we ne- people are not researching the impact of this particular upfront surprise cost to students on the overall impact of their learning. Right, and that's 100% true. So I hope that what I'm doing gets more people into researching these course materials interventions. Uh, Everything I'm doing right now is kind of like a 20,000 foot view of this. I'm not, there's things that we're not digging into because there just, there isn't enough research. So we need to put something out into the world and hopefully inspires others. You know, if we look at research on uh, open educational resources, there's a ton of research on that. Mm -hmm. But there's not that research on these course materials interventions like inclusive and equitable access. If only we could get a message out to a whole bunch of university leaders, presidents, provosts, and encourage them to encourage their faculty to do more research on inclusive and equitable access and student learning outcomes. Um, you, you brought up OER. 
uh, I, I'd love to hear some of your perspective on the OER <clears throat> research because it seems like everyone focuses on the price point, but it seems like one of the values of OER is aligned with another value of inclusive and equitable access, which is just more students with the materials. Right. Like, arguably the reason why it's most important that it's free, and I know there are those who are focused on the free speech and the lack of copyright on it, but free as in free price point is that everyone can access it. Like, what is the research showing on OER? Is it about the content itself, or is it about everyone being able to access the materials, like, and what have they found? So I'm not an expert in researching OER, but when we look at the studies, there are mixed results with the effectiveness of it. There are some studies that show uh, positive outcomes, and there are some that show that uh, OER, when compared to traditional course material content, is as good as, or it does no harm for students. But I think that OER has a rightful place in the course materials of a revolution that we're seeing. But my issues with OER is about scalability. Mm -hmm. When we think about inclusive and equitable access, we could go to an institution today and implement an equitable access program that serves 10,000 students on campus, where OER can't have that immediate impact. But I think it's important to put it into an equitable access model because I think there are certain programs and certain student populations that could benefit from OER. But we also have to think about, we say that OER is free, but it's technically not free. Like the content still has to be created, it still has to be curated. Um, so while OER is being grant funded to create the content is awesome, and I think it's great, there's a ton of faculty that are sub subject matter experts that can write incredible books. But when the funding for that OER is exhausted, how do we keep that book current? If we're writing OER in uh, an evolving um, or dynamic uh, discipline, when that funding goes away, who's encouraged to continue curating that for free? And that's what my question is with OER, is that the effort is great. I think we should, there should be creation of this open license material, mm. but how do we make sure this is current? So I think one way of looking at what you're saying is that there's this challenge on the OER community to develop more and compelling content and to be able to fund it and keep it free. And you can be supportive of that content that instructors ultimately choose. Right. But even without instructors making a choice, inclusive and equitable access can marry as a model with the content that they're using right now. Like no change in curriculum, no change in the materials they're assigned. We can just bring down the price and ensure everyone has access to it. And OER can continue to grow as all of these things grow. And I heard one of the big five publishers say, OER keeps us honest. And I thought that, that was a, a, a great admission. They obviously are supportive of inclusive and equitable access programs, but they know that OER also keeps them honest. There absolutely is a role for, in the marketplace for it. Right, a uh, utopian vision for me is that OER leaders and IAEA leaders are at the same table together talking mm -hmm. and not throwing barbs and jabs at each other across an aisle. Mm. After the break, Michael and Ryan dig into the student outcomes data tied to race and ethnicity. Mike, you touched on how um, your research has shown differing impacts from equitable access programs on different historically underrepresented student populations. Um, 
for me, I think it speaks to, first with equitable access programs, it really is just the equal price component, but at their best, they should also be speaking to an equity of opportunity. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what your research has shown on differing impacts? Sure. So I think you're right that with equitable access, it's the cost piece, but it's also the access piece, making sure that every student has access to their course materials. So when we look at the impact of equitable access when in a participant versus non-participant model, where non-participants were those who voluntarily opted out, what we've seen for uh, white students, if you opted out, it was about, you were 14% less likely to complete the course. But if you were a black student, or identified black in the study, you were 21% less likely to complete the course if you opted out. That, that also goes to 15.5% less, less likely for opt-outs of Hispanic students. Asian students were 13% less likely to complete the course if they opted out. Native American students were 17% less likely to complete the course if they opted out. And then for students who identify as two or more races, 22% less likely to complete the course. So when I look at that data and I think about historically underrepresented student populations, I say, why are we opting out? If you stay in these programs, and I know that opting out is much more than just opting out. Like we think opting out, oh, why would a student want to do that? But there could be a number of reasons which I haven't looked into. But when we think of opting out, you're so much more likely to complete the course based on this research if you stay in these programs. I think what institutions are saying to these student populations is that we hear you, we're here for you, we understand the challenges that you're facing, and course materials is just one of the ways that we can support you, but what we know now, or what we can see, is that course materials are an important aspect of higher ed. Our administration, I don't really, I don't think they really understand how important course materials are. And for a really great example, I had a, a, a meeting with the president one time and he said, I have 99 problems and course materials is number 98. <laughs> and that is a reflection of administration's perspective on course materials. They aren't important until they are. Mm -hmm. And I think the research that's being done on these intervention models tells us that course materials are important. They do help students learn. They do help to degree attainment. They do help to completing courses. So overall, the, the impact is much greater for some reason that we have yet to learn 100% why but it is greater for those underrepresented student populations. Yeah, and I know your research intentionally, in order to answer questions, looks at very specific components. Correct. And, and we talked about drawing conclusions from it. However, looking at a course completion rate, extrapolating that to graduation rates, there is a gap in the performance of these different like historically underserved groups of students Correct. in graduation rates at both two-year and four-year institutions. Even looking at the six-year time horizon, it can be an 18-point difference uh, for the four years uh, and at least a 10-point difference in the two years. Right. Okay, and then to going one step further, which I will do, <laughs> but is worth pointing out that looking at the default rate um, on student loans by students or lack of payment rate, there is also another gap that can occur. I think students identifying as black have a greater than five times likelihood of being unable to pay, pay their student loans after graduation or after leaving college, perhaps without a degree, than white students. Right. So if we can address the course completion rate, and I know this is an extrapolation, but hopefully 
the next domino, and of course is completed, speed to graduation, less debt, higher earnings potential, less default. I think that's really what the most important thing that we can do is we can contribute to progress. We can move forward. Again, there are so many moving parts in higher ed that you know, we can't say definitively that one thing, we can't say it's causational, it can be more correlational. Mm -hmm. And I think that with these programs, there is potential for us to move students more quickly through the institution. You know, if we look at what a college credit is, you know, there is a massive cost of going to a class. So if we can eliminate that cost by getting them through the first time, Mm -hmm. So not only do they pay a reduced price for their book, but they pay for the course once, they don't have to pay to retake that course and retake the textbook. Yeah. So I think that we can extrapolate and say, if we're increasing completion rates with equitable access, there could be an impact on college completion when we reflect back on the cohort within five years. Yeah, you can take a look at the costs that weren't born as a result of completing the course. And if the program, in addition to offering a discount in the beginning, also avoids those other costs, then it starts to look like an even better deal. Right. Really interesting. The way I think about it is that why would we not want to do that? Mm. It's not hurt, like, you know, if we look at the, again, white students had a 14% less likely to complete the course which is the lowest of the demographics, right? So they're still benefit, like they're still, yeah. the, the majority of students who may be at an institution are still benefiting from this, but, they're, but there are students who are benefiting more. Why would we not put the effort into helping that population? It's not hurting any students. Correct. It's benefiting all of them. Right. And it just so happens that it happens to have a disproportionate benefit on those students who have suffered disproportionate negative impacts on their student learning outcomes. Correct. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. I Thank you so very much. much hope that more research is able to be done on this. I, this is very important work and I thank you for doing it. Thank you so much for letting me be here. Thanks to Dr. Moore for sharing his insights and findings. And thank you for joining us. Keep an eye out for more What's in Store episodes coming soon.